This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Kasten-Smith, and I will be your host during our discussion today. And joining me today is a very wise, very beautiful co-host, and it's not Will. (laughs) It is my wife, Laura. Thanks. Glad to be here today. So we are continuing in our series on reasons why the gospel exploded in the first century, looking at some historical things and the way that God sovereignly wove all these stories together. Uh, One of the reasons why Laura is joining us today is we're on Thanksgiving break and everybody is scattered to the four winds. And Laura was super excited to talk about the <laughs> depravity of the Roman emperors. This is my favorite topic in the whole wide world. <laughs> she couldn't contain herself, begged <laughs> to be on this episode. And so here we are. We actually ended up getting um, some kind of virus for Thanksgiving break. So we've been pretty holed up in the house. And so here we are in our closet. <laughs> That's right. With the microphone between us. We are in Laura's prayer closet right now, <laughs> podcasting while our children are doing only God knows what. Hopefully not burning down the house. <laughs> All right. So to go back to where we started, we're talking about how did the first century church explode the way it did. And one of the things that was just believed straight from the beginning of uh, the, the Christian era is that God had sovereignly orchestrated and woven together all of the events to history to make that first century time period the perfect time for the gospel to explode. And you have to kind of remember, we take for granted that Christianity has spread all over the world, but Jesus is giving his command to take the gospel to the ends of the earth to 11 guys that are not the best educated, they're not the most famous, they don't have the most power, that means they're fishermen, they're commoners, and yet he tells them that they're going to go to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching these nations to obey everything that this Jewish carpenter who had died and risen from the dead had commanded them. And then he gives them this assurance, I will go with you, which is all they needed to know. I will go with you even to the very end of the age. And so they set off in every direction with time to go to the ends of the earth. And it is fascinating. So we've looked at eight different reasons why the gospel exploded we looked at last week, we looked at the spread of Greek philosophy and how that played such a huge role in the way that the, the gospel authors and the New Testament epistle authors teed up their message is it absolutely scratched the itch that the Greeks were feeling because none of their philosophers could answer the questions. They knew the right questions to ask, but they could not answer those questions, but the gospel answered them perfectly. We also looked at some of the Greek culture stuff, like Alexander conquering the world, spreading the Greek language. We talked about how Rome, when they rose to power, entered into the Pax Romana, or the period of Roman peace, and they had a unified political system and 250,000 miles of paved roads. We talked about how the Babylonian exile spread the Jews and their synagogues and their prophecies of a coming Messiah all over the world. 
And then their pilgrimages to Jerusalem required three times a year brought people to see the great events that happened at Passover, which included Jesus' crucifixion, the Feast of Unleavened Bread contained his resurrection, and then later, 50 days later, at Pentecost, they would have seen the move of the Holy Spirit. And each time they go back home with news of all this, and then we also talked about how the destruction of the temple, which the Romans did in 70 AD, would have left the Jews, these God-fearing people and the Jews, with no means of finding a priest that could intercede to God on their behalf, no way of doing sacrifices for atonement, no, no place where God dwelt. And it left this hole, this desperation, which Jesus fulfilled because the New Testament comes along and says, no, 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 Jesus is your high priest. He is the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world, and he is your temple. He fulfills all of it. I know it's been mentioned before, but it really is so beautiful that all of these things that you talk about, is they're negative. They're things that were hard. They're things that were awful or things that were not appreciated in the time that um, the people were living through them. But it was the way that God prepared the world for his gospel. I just think that's so beautiful, mm -hmm. his sovereignty and his, and you know, even back to the idea of the Great Commission that he's sending them out, these people who are uneducated and completely unschooled in anything to do. I think we so put burden on, um, I don't know, wisdom and readiness and, you know, preparation and things like that rather than on the power of the Spirit. Um, and I, wonder how I would have responded as one of these people um, in that time, mm -hmm. but the power of the Spirit, um, that God was going before them, that he was going to make a way for them, you know, shown in the way that he prepared the world, but also in the way that he was the one who was going to make sure that message got out through those, you know, 11 fishermen. Um, it's just beautiful to mm -hmm. see his complete control over the message that was going out. Yeah, and for people like me, this is so helpful to see that in all of these negative headlines, God was absolutely working through his purpose. Like, I've earned the nickname from some people, Eeyore, <laughs> you know, and I've earned it well, because I can tend to look at just about anything and go, hmm, you know. But when you see that God works through all of these kinds of situations, like, it's, it's tremendously encouraging to know that, I mean, look at the cross. It's the ultimate bad news. It's the ultimate tragedy, and yet God uses it to bring the greatest triumph that the world has ever seen. That's the way that he works. He is the, uh, what is it? What's the martial arts? The judo master. The judo master. He <laughs> uses the world's wickedness and overthrows it to bring good. It's, mm -hmm. it's fascinating, and that's just the way that he works. And that means he's doing that now, too. <laughs> that's right. In our lives, not just the headlines, but in our in our daily lives. And so... Jumping in today, we're getting to the ninth reason uh, how God kind of ordained all of this. And I want to say that it's the spread of the Roman army that actually helped to propagate and to further the gospel. And so if you were to live in the first century when people were looking for the Messiah, one of the reasons why so many people missed Jesus is because they thought the Messiah was going to come to overthrow the Roman army. And one of the yeah. great ironies is that God is going to use the Roman armies hmm. to spread his gospel. That's cool. He conscripts them. He brings them you know, into his service. Rather than overthrowing them as they wanted. I love that. Yeah. And so one of the things, if, if you were to, to go back and you were to look, like there's so many times in the gospel, in the book of Acts, where it makes special mention to tell you that a, that a centurion is converted. <laughs> like you find it again and again. And centurions are Roman soldiers 
they they you know centurion like century is the root of that mm-hmm. it's a hundred right. typically they commanded between 80 and 120 men and they were incredible men like polybius who wrote about what it took to be a centurion said in choosing their centurions the romans look not to men who will open the battle and launch attacks but they're those who will stand their ground hmm. Even when worsted or hard-pressed, they will die in defense of their posts. That's what he wrote about them. And so these are guys that don't fear death. They they will fight for a cause to the death. And this is the character of these people. They're that, faithful. That's right. And that's exactly what you need in the character of an evangelist. <laughs> and so what I want to do just really, really quickly is I want to just show like how often in the Gospels and the New Testament we find conversions involving soldiers. So in Luke 7, for instance, Luke tells about the, the Roman centurion. He's described as a, as a man who loved Israel. He helped to build the synagogue of Capernaum. And so G, he comes to Jesus, and he's got a sick servant, if you remember this. And he's like, you know, my, my servant is in need of healing. And Jesus says, okay, well, I'm on my way. You know, let's go. And the centurion says, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. This is why... I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. If you're Catholic, that's very familiar. Mm. They they say those lines during communion, Lord, I'm not worthy to receive you, but only say the word and I shall be healed. Um, Jesus then looks at the centurion. He's like, holy cow, this guy has greater faith than I've found even among my own people in Israel. And that centurion is going to go home and he finds his servant completely healed because Jesus, as he says, has authority just to speak mm-hmm. healing mm-hmm. into existence. And so then you, you're left to wonder what the gospel of Luke, this is chapter 7 of Luke, what the gospel leaves you to do is then question, I wonder what happened with that centurion, mm-hmm. and yeah. I wonder what happened with a servant, and I wonder what he went and told all of his other soldiers mm-hmm. who were stationed in Galilee. Mm-hmm. They're seeing this too. And what's interesting about these companies of Roman soldiers is they're deployed and they travel all over the place, which makes them, again, great evangelists. Mm-hmm. So fast forward to the end of Jesus's life, you get to Matthew chapter 27, and you remember Jesus has just been mocked, he's been crowned, he's been whipped and flogged by Roman soldiers, and it's the centurion who's leading all of that. And then at the end of Matthew chapter 27, we're told, that Jesus, as he's been crucified on the cross, when he's about to die, it says, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up a spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs broke open. And when, and it tells you, when the centurion hmm. and those with him, who are they? They're soldiers who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake. And all that had happened, they were terrified, and they exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. And so they're embracing the gospel. They're embracing his identity. It's on their lips. This man was the Son of God. That never left them. I mean, such an incredible experience to have. And they must have been very bold in their telling about what had happened. Mm -hmm. Especially when you consider that some of these very people were probably stationed to guard his tomb. (laughs) <laughs> and then yeah. the aftermath of that. And you've, you're left to wonder, did they talk about this everywhere they went for the rest of their lives? And these, these soldiers that were traveling all over the place? I mean, it's not like 
evangelist where it's like I've got to, you know, have a tent maker ministry and travel all over the place to support myself. No, Rome is footing the bill for the spread right. of the gospel. There you go. So it's it's just fascinating that people saw the Messiah as somebody who was going to come and and kill these Roman soldiers. And the gospel makes it a point again and again. Like you think of any other profession that has more noted conversions in the Bible other than a centurion. <laughs> think about it. Like yeah. carpenter, yeah. F- fisherman, I guess. <laughs> you got a group of fishermen. Yeah. But outside of the apostles, like who prostitutes and drunkards and yeah, but it's true. career. It's true. Centurion. And like, you read right past it, honestly. Lots of them. And so you get to Acts chapter 10, and this is Peter. Remember, this is before they've really settled out, like, can Gentiles become Christians Mm -hmm. and how all that works? And in Acts chapter 10, God is going to give a very clear message to the apostle Peter that, yes, (laughs) Gentiles can come to faith, and he does it through a man named Cornelius, who is a centurion, and we're told that he's from the Italian regiment, which is to tell you this is a man who's come a long way from home, He's traveling, Mm -hmm. and he's going to go back to Italy, where the center of power is in the ancient world. And so this is going to be a key centurion. And so after receiving a vision from God, seeing a blanket come down and everything being declared clean, if you know that story, Peter says to, to Cornelius, who at this point wants to give his life to Christ, wants to follow him, he's in, he's ready to go. And Peter says, surely no one can stand in the way of their, Cornelius and his whole family, in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And Mm. then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So Cornelius, another centurion with many men under his Mm -hmm. command, traveling all over the world, has a very, very, very strong encounter with the gospel. And it's fascinating, too, that, you know, the idea of Jews and Gentiles and the Jews coming to faith and then wondering whether their Gentile brothers could come to faith, brothers and sisters. And it's not just that these are Gentiles. These are the very image of the oppression of the Gentile people over the Jewish people. So it's, you know, not just any old Gentiles. And it's beautiful, too, that that's the response of the church, you know, or Peter, at least, as he's seeing this vision, you know, that that he is ready to welcome in not just a Gentile, but the enemy or the figurehead of the enemy, as it was um, in the world that they lived in. Such a radical transformation that the gospel can bring. Yeah, it's it really is amazing when you consider, you know, Luke is writing to Gentiles. He starts his gospel saying, I'm writing to Theophilus. And so it's Luke 7 we've talked about, it's Acts 10, it's going to be Acts 27 is the okay. next one. So Luke, who's writing to Gentiles, okay. wants the Gentiles to understand that this faith that had prior to this point been Jewish yeah. is not just willing to go to Gentiles, but it's willing to go to the very farthest ones of those that have oppressed the Jews, mm-hmm. namely the soldiers, hmm. uh, and that they are welcomed in and honored as as heroes of the faith even. And so... Fast forward to Acts 27, Paul is on his way over to, to be arrested, taken to Rome, and it says Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion, here we go again, mm-hmm. named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. And so it's telling you, as you move along, these every time you come to the next centurion, they're more consequential. So the first one is like, mm-hmm. oh, that's okay. this guy up in Galilee who helped to build a synagogue. The next one is the is the the centurion who's overseeing 
Pilate's group in Jerusalem. Okay. He's, he's higher okay. up. Then the next one is part of an Italian regiment, which is getting closer to the center piece of power. Well, this guy, Julius, he belongs to the Imperial Regiment. This is like Caesar's own elite guard is the idea. Hmm. And it it's says... Like it's the, penetrating deeper and deeper. That's right. That's exactly right. And it says the soldiers plan to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life because of what he had seen and experienced. And he kept them from carrying out their plan. And so... There's other places. So you not only have the centurions, but the, the letter to, to Philippians is, is filled. If you ever notice this, it's filled with military, military language. <laughs> um, and the reason for that is if you went back in history, remember when Julius Caesar is assassinated, he's assassinated by Brutus and Cassius. Okay. And Brutus and Cassius, when they killed him, thought, Rome is going to love us. They're going to celebrate us because we put this tyrant down. And it didn't go down like that. Okay. Like Rome was upset. They loved Julius Caesar. And so Brutus and Cassius had to run away. And they went to the city of Philippi. And then Octavian, who later becomes Caesar Augustus, and Mark Antony, they go to Thessalonica. So two biblical cities, Thessalonica okay. and Philippi. Well, Philippi gets conquered. This is where Brutus and Cassius are hiding out. Okay. And and the Republican forces that had assassinated Caesar are put down. And after that, the new Caesar decides that he's going to make Philippi a territory and give that territory to retiring military okay. as like a reward. And so if you were to go to the city of Philippi in the days of Jesus, guess who it's filled with? Centurions. Yeah, veterans and, mm. and military personnel. And so when he when Paul is writing to the Philippians, it's not an accident. He says in, in the opening chapter, he says, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really, he's writing this from prison, by the way, what has happened to me being imprisoned in Rome has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known, and notice he doesn't say among the Roman people and among, mm -hmm. he says throughout the whole imperial guard. Okay. In other words, your brothers in arms are coming to faith in droves. Yeah. Yeah. Why would he, like, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ, but he wants them to know that the, the imperial guard is now coming. Later in the last chapter of Philippians, he says, greet every, and this is when he's signing off, he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you. And then he closes this out, which is just glorious. <laughs> especially those of Caesar's household. Okay. So it's like Paul is saying, we're going so deep into the heart of power <laughs> that now even those in Caesar's household are coming to me to tell me to say hello to the saints in Philippi. That's neat. It's name dropping. <laughs> yeah. So all throughout this, all throughout these letters, you see it with Matthew and Luke and Paul. They're telling you, like we've said, that the enemies of the faith have mm -hmm. now been co-opted mm -hmm. to become its leading missionaries. It's beautiful. Really wonderful. Love it. All right. So that's that's number nine. And the next one is the one that you're so excited oh, to talk I about. I love it. <laughs> and that is the Caesars. I really don't. It's gross. It, it, is, <laughs> it is really gross. So we're going to try to figure out how to get through here. Some of you who are parents... Uh, depending on what quotes eventually make it in here, you may want to shield little ears from some of this, depending on what makes it. So tell us why this is important. So why this is important. 
the gospel comes and is lifting up Jesus as a different kind of king who's inviting you to have citizenship in a different kind of kingdom. Okay. And so if you were to look at the way that the gospel presents Jesus, and you were to simultaneously look at the way that Roman culture presented the Caesars, they're remarkably similar in how they're lifted up. Okay. But in who they are and what they do, they could not be more different. Okay. Um, so let me let me explain. So when 40, 44 BC is when Julius Caesar gets killed by senators in the Republican in the Roman Senate. And after that, he was he was kind of lifting himself up as as a almost an emperor. He never formally took that title, but after him, his son Caesar Augustus or Octavian is going to seize power. And by the end of Octavian's life or Caesar Augustus' life, they come and say he was a god, and they start elevating Caesar Augustus to become a god, and Julius Caesar is given status as a god. So when Caesar Augustus comes along, guess what his title is? He is the son of God. So they made Julius Caesar to be a god after his death. Correct. And so the new Caesar was the son of the god. That's that right. Was such declared as god. And so Julius Augustus Caesar comes along and everybody's saying, Harold, the son of God is here. The son of okay, God is here. Okay, that's and marked. That's pointed. Yeah, you think? Yeah. <laughs> and so in that, you have also all of these other poets and people who lived during that era. So like, for example, Virgil um, comes along and listen listen to what... Virgil's a poet? Virgil is a poet. So Virgil writes the Aeneid. That's right. And listen to what he says. Your Roman race and Julian progeny. Julian is from Julius Caesar. It's the line of Caesars that come after him. He says, behold the youth of form divine. So this is God in the flesh. Caesar himself, he says, exalted in the line Augustus, promised oft and long foretold. And so you have Virgil who comes along and says, Augustus is God, the son of God, born in the flesh, who is promised so often and long foretold. He's the one that our prophets beforehand have been promising would come and restore a golden age to Rome. And remind me of where this is in the timeline. So Virgil's writing this between 29 and 19 BC. So he's writing a, a decade or two or three after Julius Caesar is assassinated and Augustus Caesar has taken the throne two decades before Jesus will be born. Okay, got it. And you have Livy who's writing in 17 AD roughly. So Jesus is a teenager at this point. He says, or in his early 20s, it's not without good reason that the gods and men choose this place to build our city. Talking about Rome, all these advantages shape this most favorite of sites into a city destined for glory. Livy's writing, there was never any state either greater or more moral or richer in good examples than Rome. And so when the Caesars come along, you have this massive propaganda machine that starts saying that Rome is the greatest civilization that had ever been invented. It's favored by the gods, and its leader himself is a son of God hmm. destined for divinity. Okay. And so all of this is going on. At the same time that Jesus is being born. Right. And coming into his ministry. That's correct. Okay. So here's here's another line from Ovid, um, who's a poet writing during the lifetime of Jesus. And just you, you kind of have to follow this because it's old, you know, <laughs> Roman talk. But he says, "You Jupiter 
and all you other gods whom it is fitting and holy for a poet to invoke, I beg that the day be slow to arrive and beyond our own lifetime when Augustus shall rise to heaven, leaving the world he rules, and there far off shall listen with favor to our prayers. Mm. So they're praying to the Caesars. That's right. So you're praying to Augustus Caesar. You, and by the way, you consider him favored by Jupiter. He's a son of the gods. One of the other things that you find in the, in the historians that wrote about the Caesars during this time, Suetonius, for example, writes this, and you get an idea of how ridiculous myths started forming around these Caesars, particularly Augustus. Uh, who is the Caesar when Jesus is born. Suetonius writes this, When Augustus was still an infant, he was placed by his nurse at evening in his cradle on the ground floor, and the next morning he was found on a lofty tower with his face <laughs> toward the rising sun. At, this is an infant, Miracle right? Miracle baby. <laughs> yeah, right. This is like the North Korean Kim Jong-un. Like, it's, <laughs> it's crazy. I was thinking the Incredibles, you know, the little baby. Yeah, right, yeah. And then it goes on, as soon as he began to talk, it chanced that the frogs were making a great noise at his grandfather's country place, and he bade them be silent. <laughs> and they say that since then, no frog has ever croaked there. And so what does Caesar do? I mean, he's, even Jesus has to go through infancy, but Caesar, he just, jumped right he to... just climbs lofty towers <laughs> and nature obeys him. Funny. And so this is the one where I thought was the most pointed and the most interesting um, it comes from a, an archaeological find that we found. It's a calendar inscription uh, from a place called Priene. And it says, Since Providence has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, mm. sending him as a savior for both us and our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. Listen to this. Since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good tidings, and that's a very specific Greek word there. It's evangelion. It is the exact same word that we translate gospel. And so what is it saying? The birthday of Augustus was the beginning of the gospel for the world that mm -hmm. came by reason of him. And so here you have the son of God who's born to bring glory to his kingdom, and his birthday marked the beginning of the good news. That's... Yeah. Super pointed, right? That is right on the nose. Because you jump to Luke in the Nativity story, chapter 2, and what does the angel say? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news, Evangelion again, mm -hmm. of great joy that will be for all the people, not just Rome, for unto you is born this day. So here again, the birthday marks the good news mm -hmm. that a kingdom of great glory in the city of David, a savior, again, there's that language, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And so this sets Jesus. Intentionally, I think what, what's going on here is you have Rome who's lifting up Caesar Augustus as mm -hmm. the great good news, mm -hmm. the son of God who's bringing glory. And Luke comes along and says, no, 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 no. Hmm. Here's the one. This is the good news. This is the good news. And so the Bible is inviting you to compare the two. And by the way, Caesar Augustus, was cons he considered himself the high priest. That's another name he gave to himself, okay. Pontiff Maximus, which is the high priest. Well, Jesus is the high priest. Right. So very clearly, the Bible and culture are contrasting these two lines. You hmm. have Jesus against all the Roman emperors. And so <laughs> in those days, you looked to Rome 
as like that was the source of glory. The, the emperor was the ultimate source of the glory of Rome. And so when Augustus dies, remember, uh, the next emperor that comes along in 14 AD, who will remain emperor until a few years after Jesus is crucified and resurrected, is a guy named Tiberius. And so there's four more emperors that follow Augustus mm-hmm. that are in the, the Julio-Claudian dynasty, and then it switches to a different dynasty. But these that come from Augustus's line are some of the most wicked, awful, hmm. depraved, despicable, <laughs> tyrannical men who ever walked on planet Earth. And these would have been the men during the rise of the church, more so than Jesus' life. Augustus was during Jesus' life 100%? So, correct. So Augustus, no, Augustus is, he comes to power before Jesus right. is born, but he'll die in 14 AD. Okay. So Jesus, okay. I mean, you assume Jesus is born, I don't know, 2 BC, let's Got it. say. Okay. So Jesus would have been a teenager when Augustus died. Okay. Tiberius comes to power. He gives over to Caligula. Then Claudius is going to be the emperor when the church starts generating letters. Paul starts writing letters. And then Nero is going to be the emperor when Peter and Paul are both executed. So this is basically the New Testament. Correct. As the New Testament is being formed, these are the four emperors that you face. Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. And we're going to look and see... um, (laughs) <laughs> how absolutely ridiculously wicked these guys are. In contrast to the greatness of our king. That's correct. Yeah. Entirely self-absorbed, entirely cruel. They will they will trample over anyone and everyone to gain more glory and power for themselves. Hmm. And when you contrast that, I mean, you can imagine the evangelism. Hmm. Like, because as a Roman citizen, your entire existence centered on bringing glory to these disgusting, despicable Right. emperors right. and then someone comes to you and says let me tell you about a different king mm-hmm. and what he was willing to mm-hmm. do for you it's radically different and so all of them by the way are going to carry all the same mantles they all want to claim that they're the son of the divine augustus all of them claim the mantle as being high priest over all of rome um but i want to just walk through and and touch on what the historians of that era wrote and kind of their newspapers of the day about those Caesars. And so Tacitus, who's writing within a century of Tiberius, says he was loathed, hated for his cruelty, but his lust was veiled. Finally, after a while, when the restraints of shame and fear were gone, when he had total power, nothing remained but to follow his own bent, and he plunged impartially into crime and ignominy. It says some aspects, Suetonius writes, some aspects of his criminal obscenity are almost too vile to discuss. And I'm just going to say, will, not almost. <laughs> I was gonna, I'm just going to take him at his word. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, well, I guess I probably should. But <laughs> He abolished foreign cults. This is from Suetonius, especially the Egyptian and Jewish rites. So he starts cracking down on the Jews. Hmm. He's compelling all who are addicted to such superstitions to burn their religious vestments and all paraphernalia, the Jews of military age were assigned to provinces of a less healthy climate. And so when the Jews were, they would just be taken into slavery and forced to go work in provinces of really miserable, hot desert climates to mine for things. And so Suetonius goes on and it says that Tiberius Caesar, who's the first of these who has really like disgusting, appetitive abuses of other people, it says he was in the habit of abusing women, even of high birth. 
So he didn't just grab ordinary people and abuse them. He would even take his nobles, the wives of senators, and he would abuse them. Said not a day passed without an execution. So he's super paranoid and putting people to death all over the place. Many were accused and condemned with their own children and even by their children. Relatives of the victims were forbidden to mourn for them. And if they did, they were executed. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's most famous about Tiberius's uh, debauchery, he didn't want to, to rule from Rome anymore. And so he went to his palace on the island of Capri where he reigned. And this island had a almost an 1100 foot cliff that overlooked the sea right in front of his palace. And so <clears throat> Suetonius writes, he increased his cruelty and carried it to greater lengths at Capri. They still point out the scene of his executions from which he used to order that those who had been condemned after long and exquisite tortures be cast headlong into the sea before his eyes. And so he used to love watching um, people put to death. Now here's where it starts getting... Um, debauched. So if you have little ones near you, you may want to take notice. He established a new office, master of the imperial pleasures. On retiring to Capri, he devised a pleasance for his secret orgies, teams of wantons of both sexes, selected to be experts in deviant intercourse and to excite his flagging passions. Its bedrooms were furnished with the most salacious paintings and sculptures, as well as an erotic library in case a performer should need an illustration of what was required. He trained little boys to crawl between his thighs when he went swimming in order to tease him. And so Tiberius emerges as this cruel, despicable tyrant that's an utter pervert, a gross human being. He is the Caesar that is in power when Jesus is crucified. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, gross. <laughs> Pleasant. <laughs> The next emperor that comes along is a guy named Caligula, and he is almost synonymous with the idea of a tyrant. His name is just known for being a cruel, crazy dictator. Uh, his name means little boots, and his story is really sad, actually. So Tiberius had executed Rome's, probably one of its more famous and revered generals that existed, whose name was Germanicus. And he killed every single one of Germanicus's sons except for Caligula. His mother starved herself to death out of grief. And so Tiberius then adopted Caligula and joked to the Roman people. Consider what a guy that Tiberius was. He says, I am nursing a viper for the Roman people. And so he knew that Caligula was next in line. And so he began training him up um, to be a tyrant, really. And Cassius Dio, who is a historian, writes, he had been demanding that he be regarded as more than a human being. So here he is. I'm a god. And he would pretend that he was Jupiter. He also impersonated Hercules, Bacchus, Apollo, and other divinities, not merely males, but also females. So that was going on back then, too. Yes. Often taking the role of Juno, Diana, and Venus. And so you get an idea. He's, he's kind of out there. He also consecrated himself to his own service. So he made himself his own priest to worship him. And he appointed a horse as a fellow priest. That's great. <laughs> I'm sure they had great conversations. <laughs> I think I want, to name, I, want, I want to find a horse and name a horse to be my priest. Just, just, just walk around. around. Here you go. Here's my Here's priest. Here's my priest. <laughs> uh, it, would be, it would be a donkey. You would only be able to find... <laughs> A donkey to be my priest. The joke is in there. 
It says, and dainty and expensive birds were sacrificed to him daily. He had a contrivance by which he gave answering. This is this is <laughs> awesome. He gave answering peals of thunder when it thundered, and he sent return flashes when it lightning. And so, <laughs> here's a man that when it was storming outside and it would thunder, he would go back out and yell at the thunder like he was just as powerful. Um, this That's guy, great. and and most historians admit he must have caught something. Um, because he's considered, they crazy. believed that he <laughs> had some kind of disease that made him crazy. He ordered um, a colossal statue of himself to be erected into the Holy of Holies in the Temple of mm. Jerusalem um, with his own name inscribed upon it. That must have been really inflammatory to yeah. the Jews. I can only imagine. Well, Gosh, thank It's awful. He died, not surprisingly. He died before he was able to carry that okay. out. Um but he was he was terrible. He committed incest with his sisters. He shut up the granaries and condemned people to hunger just just out of spite. He opened a brothel in his palace. He was really, really, really a terrible person. And uh, Suetonius says men of honorable rank were disfigured with branding irons and condemned to the mines or thrown to wild beasts merely for criticizing one of his shows. And he forced parents to attend the executions of their sons. Awful. So you get an idea, okay, so Tiberius, monster. Caligula, absolute monster. Um, and so I want you to think, this is the kingdom that Rome is telling you, you devote your life to hmm. lifting up the glory of these men. Hmm. And now imagine the evangelist coming into your town and telling you about a different kind of mm -hmm. king, not one who tortures you uh, to gain anything for himself, but one who willingly is tortured for you mm -hmm. yeah. so that you gain. Um, not somebody who watches your sons die, but a God who loves you so much that he would watch his son die to redeem you mm -hmm. and to bring you into his family. Uh, everything was counter. It's like you look at the, the kingdom of the world versus the kingdom of heaven, and there's it's rare that you find a point in history where they are so starkly contrasted hmm. than right here. Hmm. And that helped to further the gospel. Uh, then, then you get to Claudius, who's the uncle of Caligula, and the only reason why he survived Caligula's murderous rampage or Tiberius's murderous rampage is because they considered him a fool. Uh, Suetonius wrote that he was spared merely as a laughingstock, and a book that was written about him at the time was titled The Elevation of Fools. He walked with a limp. He was slightly deaf. So they considered him like, no way this guy would ever, ever, ever rise to become Caesar. But he did. And while he doesn't have all of the craziness, uh, the sexual debauchery as the other two before him, he was cruel, and he was bloodthirsty, so he, he's the one who really amped up the gladiatorial shows. He gave orders that those who fell accidentally should be slain like there was no mercy, um, no mercy at all. He's the one, and if you read Acts 18.2, when the Jews are expelled from Rome because of, of the riots involving the gospel, he's the one who did that. He's the one who <laughs> banned the Jews from going to North Africa, to Alexandria. So he's the one who really starts clamping down on the spread of the gospel. Um, and he's mentioned in the book of Acts a few times. Which is also fascinating that he knew about the spread of the gospel, that it had created enough noise that it made it to the emperor. That's right. 
So this is the same guy, if you remember us talking about the Nazareth inscription, Mm -hmm. where he sends an edict to the city of Nazareth, which would have been Podunk town back then, saying that if if you find anybody who's removing bodies out of tombs, Mm -hmm. he wants them put to death. And you wonder why is the emperor of (laughs) this massive empire sending edicts to Nazareth about bodies being outside of tombs? You know, it's... So this is that's this guy. Um, and then the last one in the line, and then we're going to close out here, is a guy that everybody's heard of. And this is Nero. So he lives and reigns from 54 to 68 AD. Um, so this is when Paul is in house arrest, when Paul is third missionary journey on. Um, the gospel is really, really starting to intensify and go faster and faster. And so... This is what we're told about Nero, direct quote. Although at first his acts of wantonness, lust, extravagance, avarice, and cruelty were gradual and secret, so when he's younger he kept these things at bay, might be condoned as the follies of youth, yet even then their nature was such that no one doubted that they were defects of his character and not due to his time in life. So he was a monster as a young man, and everybody knew that it was more than just, oh, you know, he's a young guy, he'll grow out of it. No, 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 it was too too gross. It says, no sooner was twilight over than he would catch up a cap or a wig. He would go out in disguise and beat men as they came home from dinner, stabbing any who resisted them and throwing them into sewers. Just a thug walking around. Total thug. And so even from youth, he was a, a brute. So this is Cassius Dio who writes this. He says, Nero did not hear a word of truth from anyone and saw none but those who approved of his actions. That sounds familiar. Mm -hmm. Hence, he became much worse in other respects also. He came to believe that anything that was in his power to do was right. And he gave heed to those whose words were inspired by fear or flattery as if they were utterly sincere in what they said. Suetonius writes that he was guilty of abusing freeborn boys seducing married women. One of the most famous and disturbing and grotesque examples of his debauchery uh, happens after he killed his wife in a fit of rage. He kicks his wife to death, and then he mourns her loss. And so one day as he's walking around in the streets, he sees a young prepubescent boy who looks like his deceased wife. And this is a direct quote from Suetonius. It says, He castrated the boy Sporus and actually tried to make a woman of him, and he married him with all the usual ceremonies, including a dowry and a bridal veil, and took him to his house, attended by a great throng, and treated him as his wife. Awful. After that, this is Cassius Dio, after that, Nero had two bedfellows at once. Pythagoras to play the role of a husband to him, and Sporus that of a wife. The latter, in addition to the other forms of address, was termed lady, queen, and mistress. And so here you have an emperor, and you don't hear about this much, but he had both a husband and a wife. It says, whenever he rode in a litter, this is Suetonius, whenever he rode in a litter with his mother, he had incestuous relations with her. He later commissioned the murder of his mother, and he banished his own wife for her infertility. So Nero is probably most famous. In 64 AD, fire sets out in Rome, and he immediately goes to work blaming the fire. Most people think that he set it intentionally so that he could claim that section of Rome for his own building projects. But in 64 AD, the fire consumes Rome, and Suetonius tells us the punishment by Nero was inflicted on Christians 
a class of men given to a new and mischievous superstition, which was the resurrection. Hmm. Tacitus then comes and gives us more of what Nero did. He said to get rid of the report that he was to blame, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, which is Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus, and a most mischievous superstition, the resurrection, thus checked for the moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. This is a Roman historian. Yeah, exactly. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty, and then upon their information, an immense multitude, and that's always been amazing to me, because remember, this is 64 AD, and their own historian is saying by this point, and remember, the Gospel of Mark is the earliest gospel, and they say that it's brand new at this point, Hmm. and yet there's already an immense multitude of Christians that are convicted that will not recant that won't walk away from their faith. And it says, mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skin of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when the daylight had expired. And so Nero would take, he would decorate his gardens with crucified Christians and light them on fire to give light to the beauty of his own gardens. Hmm. Here you have these sons of God, these high priests, these, you know, this good news, right? Mm -hmm. And how do they behave? They trample everyone. Human life has no value. Everything exists, is cheapened and degraded to serve the interest of one hedonistic king. Mm -hmm. And like we've talked about, you counter that with the gospel, and though God has all power, he's omnipotent. If he were a tyrant, we could not stand against him. If he wanted us to do the most depraved, abusive, awful things, we would have no right to object because he is God and he is omnipotent. And yet, we have a God who is none of those things. Mm -hmm. We have a God who's extraordinarily kind Mm -hmm. and extraordinarily humble, who entered into our place. He became the slave for us. He became the one. He gave it all away. He gave it all away. Mm -hmm. He had all glory. Why does he do it? To share that glory with us. And so, again, God is engineering all of this history to come together at this point so that you see, no, 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 the good news that brings great joy Mm is that our God has entered the world not to grandeur and golden thrones Mm -hmm. and accolades and trumpets and everything else. No, he comes into this world with extreme humility to walk in our shoes, Mm. to be thought of as a bastard child, to be homeless, to be poor, to be rejected, to be the kind of a God that when the, the lowliest and the farthest away cries out with real pain. They're not crying to a God that can't relate. The Mm -hmm. Caesars could not relate. Mm -hmm. But your God, your king, can. And he is building a kingdom, a heavenly kingdom that seeks to pierce into this world and to bring his glory here. And what is his glory? His glory is the fruit of the Spirit 
being manifested through his people here on this earth to lift up the lowly Mm -hmm. and to show dignity to those who feel utterly undignified. Mm -hmm. He's a good king who gives it all away. And I love that we're entering the Advent season. It's a good note to begin and on to remember that the gospel came not to um, people who were um, maybe used to hearing it or people who were ready for it um, in the sense that they had grown up in it. They knew the story. It came to people who were just, it was completely unexpected. It was completely different, completely other than what they were used to. I've wondered at different times if I would have seen it and would have heard it. You know, would I, I've grown up in a, a place with that has been influenced by or influenced by um, the gospel and, you know, to believe the gospel when you've heard it all your life and it's the culture around you. Um, but in both ways, in one way, it's harder to walk away from everything you know. Um, but then again, it's also such a contrast to all of the awful that you know. So what a beautiful thing that God would come at that time and not to a culture that was um, righteous and beautiful in some ways, but in a culture that was the exact opposite of what he was coming to do. Yeah, and, you know, jumping back into last week, uh, if you remember Socrates saying that this world's not going to produce a just man. You know, our people, when they get power, tend to abuse others. They tend to use it for personal gain and personal glory. And he says, if we ever did get a truly just, righteous man, we'd crucify him. Hmm. You know, one of the things I, that I find fascinating is if you go around the world, you know, right now with, you know, all the woke philosophy and the education, you know, Christianity gets a bad rap for being kind of a colonializing power or whatever. And all of that drives me crazy because if you, if you really, if you go around the world and you look at the areas before Christianity and Christian ethics spread through them, and I'm not saying that Christianity and the misuse of Christianity hasn't caused evils, But the ethic of Christianity, that every human being is created in the image of God, that every human being has value, that there is nobody that is, you know, shut off from redemption. If you go around to other parts of the world where Christianity has not taken root, you know, the the example that I first heard about on this example is prior to Christianity coming to India, you know, when, when men died, their wives were thrown on funeral pyres with them while they were still alive. And children, too, if they were too young, because they had no value apart from their husbands. When the gospel through the British came into India, that began to change. If you look at Islamic countries that have not received or allowed the gospel to take root, and you look at the way that they treat their marginalized communities or women, you'll find that rights don't exist in the same way as you find them in Western Christianized cultures. Uh, And the same can be said for just about every culture that you find under the sun. The places that have enjoyed um, the influence of Christian ethics have things like liberty. They have things like dignity of people and all of the the benefits and the blessings that come out of that, human rights, um, we tend to see as, oh, those just emerged on their own. Well, next week, we're going to take a look and see what were the ethics like in the most advanced culture that had ever existed up to that point in the ancient world, uh, the Roman civilization, which was, which had inherited all the wisdom of the Greeks, and we're going to find that the ethics of that era were radically different 
than the ethics that we enjoy today. And it was changed to our, for our benefit by the spread of the gospel. Uh, we do ourselves a great disservice thinking that humanity will stumble into righteousness on our own. <laughs> that just does not happen. In fact, <laughs> I was listening to a podcast by Tim Keller, and he was pointing out that the greatest and most advanced philosophy of the last century was arguably the Germans. They had you know, the greatest composers. They had the most advanced engineers. They, they, were, they were on the cutting edge of virtually everything, and yet when you removed the gospel and godliness from the equation, the most advanced humans did not bring forth the ethics of human rights and dignity. Mm-hmm. The most advanced civilization of that era put entire groups of people into gas chambers. That's what humanity is capable of apart from the influence of the gospel. And that is what first century Rome was willing to do to its people to advance the causes of the emperor. It was gross. And Jesus was a much, much better king. So thank you so much for joining us. I know this one was a kind of a downer episode. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking about how Jesus went and reached, this one is my favorite of all of them, actually, how Jesus went out and reached the most marginalized communities, and there were a lot of them in the Roman Empire. Uh, that gives us a roadmap to revival for our age today, and I hope that you will join us. I hope that this episode, as gross as it was, was somewhat edifying for you to understand We are really lucky to have a king like we do. God bless. Have a great week. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.